For the next hour, you'll be leaving the show me state and entering the show me the money state. So stop what you're doing, grab a pen, and get ready to learn. Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group will be your guide for straight talk and honest answers about living the life you deserve in retirement. So So prepare prepare to to be be empowered. Now, here are your show me the money hosts, Jake Floyd and Jeff Shade. Good morning. Thank you so much. Welcome to Show Me the Money with Randy and Jake Floyd, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. I'm Jeff Shade, and I'm just here to ask the questions. But of course, the words of wisdom and the solid advice this morning come from Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. Hey, Jake, how are you doing this fine Saturday morning? I am doing very well, Jeff. We got a lot of things to talk about on the show today, Jake. For those people who are wondering what we're going to talk about later on, we'll talk about the basics of Social Security. We'll also talk about how to create some passive income. We'll uh, then talk about what it's like to come and see Floyd Financial Group for your initial review. But I want to start off with current events. I've been seeing in these headlines here all over the place that uh, still massive layoffs are happening. I mean, I've got Nike, Paramount, Cisco, DocuSign, American Airlines, Instacart, Morgan Stanley, Snapchat, Zoom, Google, Amazon. I mean, should we really be worried about this? Yeah, I think if you look back at that list you just recited there, Jeff, 80, 90% of those are technology, software type companies. And so a lot of those companies really overhired during the pandemic. And so I think they're just kind of trimming the fat. I mean, including Google and some of those companies, a lot of those jobs are $250,000, $300,000 year jobs. Right. They're trimming the extra jobs that they hired there. When it starts to become manufacturing type jobs and those types of things, I think that'll be more concerning. But right now we're not seeing a lot at that level. It's more some services companies, but a lot of software and tech companies. So if you're invested in things like Amazon and Google and let's say NVIDIA, I don't know how they're doing. You really shouldn't be worried that they're in financial trouble. Basically, what you're saying is they're just trimming a little bit of the fat. Yeah. And I think honestly, it's a good thing. You know, the more that they trim the different jobs and things like that, the more profit dumps to the bottom line. And so it should be good for shareholders. If you watch the stock price action of a lot of these companies, when they make these announcements, hey, we're going to cut 9,000 jobs or whatever, the stock actually pops two or 3% that day usually. That's just because it's excess spending that they don't feel like they need. That just equals more profit. And if a stock is worth some multiple of its profit, then that means that company is going to be worth more in the future. Talking with Jake Floyd here of Floyd Financial Group. Let's talk a little bit about inflation, Jake. I understand that the inflation rate doesn't continue to go down, but it's sort of stalled a little bit. In some cases, at least it has ticked up somewhat. Yeah, so uh, a couple weeks ago, we had some pretty big CPI surprises to the upside. So consumer price index, meaning prices rose more than expected, and then followed up again by PPI, which is producer price index, which is kind of the input cost of a lot of the things that we buy, also was a huge surprise to the upside. Now, there's a little more to it than that. Those were big surprises to the upside, but they're surprises month over month. January has a lot of cyclical things that make that happen quite a lot, where we have surprises to the upside. I don't know that we need to read too much into it yet, but if we were to see another follow-up number this month with a higher CPI, higher PPI, then it might be something to start to be concerned about a little bit. However, personally, I do not think that's going to be the case, that inflation is going to just reignite here. But it could cause the Fed to wait a little bit longer before it starts lowering rates. And I understand one of the headlines that I'm reading here, a recession, investor fear of missing out, inflation, all these things are really threatening the stock market's red-hot rally. What do you make of this? 
the market has been trying to price in rate cuts since before they stopped hiking, you know, and so everybody's trying to guess when rate cuts are coming. So rate cuts grease the wheels of business and makes business easier to do and is good for the stock market. The different participants and analysts out there have all been trying to guess when that's going to happen. And so these CPI and PPI results kind of threaten, because what they were pricing in was cuts in March. Since those came out, they have repriced probably cuts in May, but that may still be a little bit optimistic. If they cut the Fed funds rate, the market will soar on that news. But the question is, is it going to be one month, three months? How long is it going to be before we start getting those rate cuts? Because the market had priced in like seven rate cuts this year Mm -hmm. versus the Fed had signaled maybe three. And don't hold your breath waiting for those rate cuts either because they're not going to be coming as soon as I think a lot of people thought they were. Let's talk about interest rate cuts. And a lot of people think that Jerome Powell himself personally decides when to cut rates. But really, he's just sort of the mouthpiece for this, right? You know, I think there's a couple of sides to that, Jeff. I think that he definitely leads the show over there. He probably has more weight on interest rate policy than anybody alive. However, like you said, it is an 11-person voting committee. He doesn't make all the decisions. But again, he has a great amount of influence, very large amount of influence. And so if he thinks it's time, there will be other Fed members that kind of fall in line behind them. And the Fed in general really likes to have consensus. They try to have unanimous votes when they can. That doesn't happen all the time, but quite often it does. And so that shows you a little bit about how the bandwagon effect could be at play when it comes to Jay Powell and the way he wants policy done. You know, he's the chairman and all that, so he gets to direct. I think it would be fair to say that if we're most of the time uh, have a unanimous decision at the Fed, that Jay Powell would have the greatest influence over that. I think it would be actually kind of difficult to overstate how powerful Jay Powell is. Uh, I'd say economically speaking, he's probably the most powerful person on the planet. And interest rates, I mean, they really affect anybody who's signing for a loan, whether it be for a mortgage or maybe even credit cards. I'm surprised to see that I don't know that you can get a credit card these days, Jay. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that every credit card offer that I get, even with excellent credit, it's 25, 28%. That seems to be the norm these days, and that doesn't deter a lot of people from spending still. When it comes to credit cards, I think a lot of the credit card companies are really starting to pull back the reins on their risk profile. So they look around, they say, okay, a lot of these people are leveraged. They're a little too leveraged. As they pay off their card, let's go ahead and reduce their their maximum limit so that we're not too exposed here. And so a lot of these different banks have really started to pull back on the available credit they want to extend to people, especially people with less than perfect credit. I think they're expecting that there may be a recession coming. Again, I think that's a little too early to call because as long as the average Joe keeps their jobs, I really don't think we will have a recession. If we really start to see the unemployment rate really start to tick up or the labor force participation rate go down, then I think that could be a bigger threat. But I I don't think we're there just yet. And I still see headlines, Jake, about an impending recession. I mean, we've been talking about this for, it seems like, a couple of years now, and it just never comes. Probably two and a half, even. Yeah, two and a half years. So, I mean, when are we going to stop talking about recession? Well, I mean, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So I think if we just keep calling for it, eventually those people will be right. But... um, (laughs) You know, I was concerned about recession a couple of years ago on the back of the pandemic, but the the government pulled out the bazooka and uh, 
printed like six, seven trillion dollars, and that mm-hmm. that really trickled down through the economy, and things were really better than feared. You know, when it comes to recession, I really think again the key is the unemployment rate. If people keep their jobs, it's going to be very difficult to have a recession. You know, people may have to pull back. Interest rates are also very key to recession because for the last twenty years, twenty five years even. Americans have really treated their house like a piggy bank. Right. And so what happens is is they run up the credit cards, all that. The last time they ran up the credit cards was three or four years ago. So their house is appreciated 15, 20, 25%. They go in, they refinance their house, pull the cash out, pay off the credit cards, and then start the whole process over again. So if interest rates were to come down, I think the room is there to do that again. The problem is right now people have 2.5% interest rates and they can't afford to have to go refinance it at 6 or 7 or 8, depending on credit. But if we were to get interest rates back down around you know, where a 30-year mortgage was 4 or 4.5%, I think they could definitely refinance this credit card debt that they have now and really kick the can another 3 or 4 or 5 years. If we keep interest rates high for very much longer, that window may close. And so I think that's part of the reason why the market really feels like the Fed is going to cut sooner rather than later. And let's be honest, you know, if the Fed says, hey, we're definitely going to cut next month, that will undo a lot of work they've done on inflation. People will just go wild and start spending again. I really think that this is probably going exactly the way the Fed wants it to go. Mm -hmm. I do think they will cut sooner than they are letting on, but maybe not as soon as the market wants them to. But I I do see a path for uh, the soft landing they've been talking about at this point. Yeah, well, I'm pretty optimistic here about the rest of the year. But of course, I'm an optimistic guy anyway. And I want to wrap up this part of our conversation today by talking about the presidential race. We've talked about it before, and I see these conflicting articles once in a while that say, yes, the presidential race affects a lot of things as far as the market and the economy goes. And then I see other articles that say, well, the presidential race really doesn't affect anything. What's your opinion on that? And in particularly this current presidential race, which I think is unlike any that we've ever seen. Yeah, 100%. Very unique race that we're going to have here, no matter how it shapes up. Uh, Although it is looking more and more likely we're going to have somebody out of left field on the Democrat side. I I do think that the president does matter to the extent that we're not going to world wars and, you know, we're protecting our borders and things like that. As far as like a direct economic impact based on the president, tax rates are really the only thing that that the president controls to some extent. Technically, it's Congress, but the president has to be willing to sign a bill that would be passed. A lot of presidents either cut or raise taxes. That does affect the economy. But I would agree that it probably affects less than you would maybe think. I think their willingness, any president's willingness to sign spending bills, if they are willing to sign those bills, then markets will like that. If they are not and they're more hawkish on spending, which our country desperately needs, frankly, I think markets do not like that as much because markets really thrive on free money. And so historically speaking, the market operates best with a Democratic president because he'll sign any spending bill that comes across his desk. I also think it has to do with the fact that that presidency is likely thriving off a previous Republican presidency, such as Clinton reaping the benefits of what Reagan had done, you know, mm-hmm. several years before. Well, these are certainly interesting times indeed, and we'll just have to wait and see how things shake out. If you're listening to the program today and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm not sure how this market and the economy is going to affect me. I'd really like some advice on that. We're offering a no cost, no obligation opportunity for you to sit down with Jake there at Floyd Financial Group and ask the questions that you need to get answers to so that you can create a smooth path towards a retirement journey for you. 
In order to get this, all you've got to do is call 417-889-7233. You can do it today if you like. Simply leave your name, your telephone number. Ashley will give you a call back next week and set up an appointment for you to sit down with Jake. And when Randy's in the office, you can talk with Randy as well, too. Or you can talk with both of these gentlemen, 417-889-7233. And again, I want to emphasize something. This is strictly a discovery conversation. They're not going to try to sell you anything at all. It's just a conversation so that they can figure out who you are and also to get your questions answered. Again, no cost, no obligation, not going to cost you a dime, and there is no judgment. 417-889-7233. You can also request your complimentary consultation online at Floyd Financial Group. That's FloydFinancialGroup.com. Jake, time for a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about Social Security basics and more when our show continues here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready for another helping of some more real money talk? Thought so. Now, here's another serving of Show Me the Money with your hosts, Jake Floyd and Jeff Shade. Welcome back to Show Me the Money. I'm Jake Floyd. In this segment, we're going to be talking about Social Security, everybody's favorite topic. Yeah, and a lot of people misunderstand some things about Social Security, so we're going to sort of set the record straight here this morning. It is one of the basics, I think, of retirement planning is deciding when to take Social Security and what the ramifications are if you don't take it at the right time. So let's begin at the beginning, Jake. The earliest you can take Social Security is age 62. And I'm surprised at the number of people who do take it at age 62. They jump on it right away. That could be a mistake, right? There's a million different ways to look at Social Security. In fact, some softwares have counted higher than that ways to take Social Security. There's (laughs) software out there to aid you in that decision that we have access to. Honestly, I don't use that software very often because it requires you knowing the day you're going to pass away. Right. Which nobody knows, right? At least nobody I know knows that. When it comes to Social Security and when to take it, I think the number one thing to consider is whether or not you're still working at all. If you have retired already or retire at 62 and you do not plan to go back to work, it can make sense to turn it on at 62, but it does limit your options to work part-time or go back to work because you can only earn a certain amount of money, around $21,000 a year, without having to pay back Social Security if you take it before your full retirement age, which most of the people, if you have not taken Social Security yet, you're either at 66 and 10 months or you're at 67 as your full retirement age at this point. So taking Social Security at 62 limits your ability to work after that. But if you're sure you're going to retire and stay retired, I do think in a lot of cases it can make sense to turn it on because it helps you not spend down your nest egg as much as you might if you're trying to wait to take Social Security till several years later. There's a lot of break-even analysis done out there, meaning, hey, if I take it at 62 versus at 67, how long do I have to wait before I get even taking it at 67 because I didn't get those extra five years of payments, although I'm getting the larger payment? And the answer to that question is usually around 78 years old is when you get even. That figures in, though, a 0% rate of return on the money that you would have taken between 62 and 67, meaning you're spending that money. If you're not spending that money and you even invested at 4%, you may never get even during your lifetime. So there are situations where it makes sense to help not spend as much of your nest egg by turning on Social Security earlier. But there are situations where it makes sense to wait. The biggest reason to wait is if you're not actually retired, if you turn it on Social Security, you're going to end up paying it back. 
every $2 you earn over $21,000, if you take your Social Security early, $1 must be paid back. It doesn't take long to have to pay back the whole Social Security check if you take it early and you're still working full time. And Jake, there are people out there who say, well, I'm going to take it at 62 because it's in such trouble. I mean, it's going to go away. I'm going to get mine while I can. Do you think that Social Security in reality is ever going to go completely away? I personally do not think that, Jeff. I do think it will probably, they may shift it to a different name or rework it or something, but Social Security, I don't believe, is going to go away. There's really nothing to suggest that it would. There'd be a lot of people that are totally destitute without it. Probably 60% of the people that I see need at least some Social Security to live on in retirement. To take it away would be a pretty big problem. Uh, I do think, however, that it is overspent and underfunded, and so at some point they will have to rework it. So taking Social Security before that date could potentially grandfather you in, meaning if they're going to do a 20% cut to Social Security, if you've already taken it, it's going to be harder for them to cut people that are already on it because they've already made a lot of life decisions around the fact that they're going to have X amount of Social Security. So Congress really likes to grandfather things in so that they don't have as much red tape. So they say, hey, you know, everybody that took Social Security on January 1st of 2024 and before, we're not going to change yours. But everybody looking forward after that, we're going to cut yours 20%. I do think that that's a possibility. And so that's another thing to consider when deciding when to turn on the Social Security, either at 62 or 67, earlier versus later. So there are pros and cons to taking Social Security at age 62. Of course, the con, as you said, the biggest one to my thinking is that there's a cap on the amount of money that you can make. And as you said, it's somewhere around $21,000. If you make more than that, you've got to give back a dollar for every $2 that you make over that. And the pro for taking Social Security at age 62 is maybe you need the money. You've got to put food on the table. That is a, a good reason to take Social Security at age 62. Am I correct in thinking that if you take it at 62, that there's about a 30% decrease in the amount of money that you will make as opposed to waiting until full retirement age? Yeah, that number sounds about right there, Jeff. I think there are a few other factors that play into that, such as how much money you're making between that 62 and 67, if it's significantly more or less than what you were making in previous years. You know, again, it's not quite that simple. That's about right. The biggest thing is, is while you wait, you get basically 8% simple interest each year that you wait. So simple interest is greatest in the first year that you get it, right? Meaning 8% is 8%. But as time goes forward beyond that, another 8%, another 8%, because it's not compounding, you know, a 4% rate can at some point exceed an 8% rate if it's compounding. One other thing that's important to understand, you do get these increases, but it's not quite as good as it seems on the surface. And another reason that you may not want to take Social Security at age 62 is because of spousal benefits. If uh, one spouse dies, the living spouse gets the other one's Social Security, and that could reduce those benefits. Am I right on that? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And this is one of the cases to make to maybe wait to take Social Security. So depending on your current nest egg, the disparity between ages between the couple, the disparity in how much Social Security that you earn, all those are factors in determining when to file. And so maybe you don't need as much income now, but if something were to happen to you, your spouse might need more. Let's say you have a big pension or something like that. These are all factors that we would consider. So I'm not saying 
for sure we need to take it earlier rather than later. But I am saying that for the vast majority of people, once you're retired, it usually makes sense to turn it on. There are reasons to wait, such as the one you just brought up, Jeff. But that's what we do here at Floyd Financial Group. That's one of the main things that we're focused on is investments and then also figuring out how to get income out of those investments. And one of the main factors that plays into there is Social Security and when to take it and how that affects your overall retirement. And let's jump up to the FRA or the full retirement age. For most people listening to the program today, it probably will be somewhere between 66 and a half and age 67. Full retirement does come with its benefits. Now, if you wait until your full retirement age, is there any cap on what you can make? There is not. So uh, you don't have to pay anything back. However, there are some situations where it could still make sense to wait For example, if you have a really large income or you're filing as a single person and have a decent size income, from a tax perspective, it might make sense to wait, depending on what your post-retirement income is going to look like, meaning it doesn't make sense to file for Social Security to pay extra taxes on it at 67 if you're making $200,000 a year, but it might make sense to wait so that you have a better retirement income rather than just paying all those extra taxes on it between 67 and 70. So that's one reason potentially to wait. And I've heard some people say, well, I'm going to go ahead and take it at full retirement age. And even though I don't need the money, I'm going to invest that because I think I can make more in investments than I would pay in taxes. Is that a reasonable theory? Um, it can be. Um, again, it's really going to depend, I think, more on your tax rate than it will on your ability to come up with investment performance. Meaning if I'm going to have to pay 30% in taxes because I'm working at the same time versus if I wait, get a bigger payment, and then I'm in the 12% tax bracket later, that's going to be very difficult to overcome. However, if you're going to be in the same tax bracket, I would argue that it could make sense to go ahead and turn it on, stack up some money and get it invested and give yourself a little more control long term over that money. But it really depends on, you know, what you have saved, if you have enough saved and what your goals are with that money, whether you're going to pass it on to beneficiaries or if you're wanting your last check to bounce, as my dad likes to say. And that last magical age for Social Security is going to be age 70. That is the age that you get the most. Now, if you wait until after 70, are you going to get even more. I mean, if you wait until after 70, you're just going to be losing out, right? Right. Anytime that you wait after 70, it really makes no sense. It's a little bit like holding EE bonds past 30 years. Mm -hmm. You basically don't get any more interest. There's no more reason to wait. So you should turn it on when you turn 70, if you haven't already. And also people don't realize that, you know, over the many years that you've been working, you paid into Social Security. I think that was part of your your paycheck. You know, you had money taken out to fund Social Security. So people are thinking, well, when I get Social Security, it's already taxed. I'm not going to have to pay taxes on it. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Social Security is actually taxed, but only up to a certain percent. Yep. It's the new American dream, Jeff. It's, uh, you know, we, we get taxed on the income and then we get taxed on social security. Once they start paying us on that, we have to pay taxes again. And after you buy something with that, let's say you buy a car or something, right. you know, with personal property, then you're paying taxes on that forever after you've paid the sales tax. So yeah, that's, that's Biden's American dream right there is tax, 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 tax. But with Social Security, you're not paying tax on 100% of that. I mean, there is an income threshold in which you pay no tax, and then it sort of gradually ramps its way up. The most that you can pay in taxes is on 85% of your Social Security income. And I want to underline 
line on. Doesn't mean that you're paying 85% in taxes. It means that 85% of your Social Security could be subject to tax. Am I correct on that? That's all correct, Jeff. And so that's another thing that we're going to consider when it comes to when to file is roughly how much of your provisional income is going to be figured. And as far as how much of your Social Security is going to be taxable, whether it's 50% or 85%, does play a role in when we take it, especially if you're still working past age 67. When to take Social Security is, I think, a very critical decision to make because, Jake, correct me if I'm wrong, but for most of the clients that you see, would you say that Social Security makes up maybe 30, 40 percent of their retirement income? Yeah, I would say I think 40% is probably about right, Jeff, on average. Some people it doesn't make up hardly any. Some people it's all they have. Uh, but I would say 40% sounds, sounds about right in my experience on average. And so, you know, it's definitely a very important part of retirement for most people. A lot of people are concerned about it, and they should be concerned about it. We're here to help answer questions about Social Security for people listening to the show. That's why we like to offer our our no-cost, no-obligation retirement review. We just want to come in and try to see if we can help, including calculations on Social Security, as well as investments and that sort of thing. And if someone does make a mistake, they're listening to the program today and they're doubting about their Social Security and when they've taken it, can they do it over? I mean, if you make a mistake, can you go back and change it? Yes, Jeff, there is a way that you can change Social Security. You can stop it and pay it back in. Again, it's usually not a very attractive option for most people, but depending on what, what's been done, we can definitely look at that and see whether it makes sense. So if you're listening to this part of the program today and you're thinking to yourself, boy, Social Security, this is a really big part of my income. I'm wondering if I've made a mistake. Can I undo this? Am I getting less than I expected? Could I get more? Well, of course, Floyd Financial Group, Jake and Randy are there to answer those questions and to help you through this Social Security maze. And Jake talked about this no cost, no obligation, and no judgment financial review, which will include answering questions about Social Security. To get yours, no cost, no obligation, call 417-889-7233. It's 417-889-7233. You can call it this weekend. Schedule an appointment with Ashley. She'll get right back to you on the next business day and set up a time for you to sit down with Randy and Jake and not only talk about Social Security, but all the other things that will affect your journey towards an optimal retirement. Once again, that number, 417-889-7233. Not going to cost you a dime. It is a no-tie zone there at Floyd Financial Group. As I said, it's just a friendly conversation between you and Randy or Jake. 417-889-7233. You can also request your plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. FloydFinancialGroup.com. Certainly glad you decided to join us here on this Saturday morning. We're going to take a break. When we come back here and show me the money, we'll be talking about passive income, how to generate that, and more when our show continues here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready to climb a mountain of financial know-how? Good, because it's time for more Show Me the Money with your financial Sherpa, Jake Floyd. Welcome back to Show Me the Money. I'm Jake Floyd, and in this segment, we're going to be talking about the best ways to come up with passive income. And that sounds like a very attractive option here, Jake. It's income that I don't necessarily have to go to work for every day. I did something in the beginning for this. But boy, I tell you, this mailbox money, uh, Randy talks about mailbox money. It sure is good to get. So let's talk about some of the ways that our listeners can generate passive income. First of all, what is your definition of passive income? 
Yeah, so passive income is really money that comes into you that you don't have to actually work for. So a good way to understand this would be like rental income versus investment income, right? So rental income is not necessarily passive. In fact, if you're doing a lot of the work yourself, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that it's not passive. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> um, you can make it passive or very close to passive, but usually you will get much less return because you're going to be hiring a management company and people to help collect rent and all that kind of thing. But we're really talking about income that just shows up in the mailbox, so to speak. Okay, some examples of passive income, as you said, it could be investment real estate, but that's not exactly passive. And I think a lot of people misunderstand that, that if I buy a rental property, just the rents are going to come in and that's all there is to it. And the tenant's going to pay for my mortgage, but it couldn't be further from the truth. If you're thinking about getting into investment real estate, you think again, because it very well could become a part-time job. So what are some examples of true passive income? Let's start with dividend stocks. Uh, How do dividend stocks differ from just regular stocks? Yeah, so stocks that pay a dividend. Owning stock, you have ownership in a company. And so if you were to own your own company, you know, what would you be expecting to get out of that company? Income. As that business earns money, you pay yourself the income out. Dividends work similarly to that in the fact that you own part of the company, therefore you are entitled to some of the profit and the way that they distribute some of that profit is via dividends. Not all stocks have dividends. Some stocks have a small dividend, some have no dividend, some have huge dividends. And so when we're talking about dividends, that's income that's paid out to you by the company itself. And the most basic form of passive income, of course, would be Social Security. It's something that you paid into, but now you don't have to do anything in order to get that. Also pensions, but a lot of people don't have pensions these days. So we're talking about passive income here, and we're, of course, talking about dividend stocks. What are some of the other investments that really will throw off passive income for you? Yeah, so mutual funds and ETFs also can pay dividends. Technically, the dividends that come out of those types of funds are coming from stocks, but there's a plethora, if you will, of stocks in there that issue those dividends so you don't have the single company risk as much if you have a smattering of companies inside the ETF or the mutual fund platform. We were talking about real estate earlier. There are these things called real estate investment trusts or REITs. How do they play into this conversation? Can they truly be sources of passive income? And what do you think about REITs? Jeff, I think you know how I feel about REITs, but uh, for those that haven't heard before, (laughs) I wanted you to say everybody buckle up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So REITs definitely can give you passive income. However, I'm not sure that I've ever talked to a happy REIT owner. Anytime we talk about REITs, it's usually a client comes in and they say, "Grumble, grumble, grumble." I have this stupid grumble, grumble, grumble. You know, REIT, and the reason for that is they're very illiquid, especially the ones that are not publicly traded. Even if they're aiming to become publicly traded, a lot of times there's a period of five to maybe even as many as 10 years where those REITs are totally illiquid, where you can't get to that money. They also tend to sell you the bill of goods on the front end of those. Say, hey, we're going to have a 7 or 8% distribution rate. What they leave to the fine print to explain is that sometimes that's going to be income. Sometimes they're going to lower that income and then pay you back some of your principal in those distributions it just rarely seems to go as well as it sounds in the brochure. And so 
when it comes to REITs, um, there there can be some reasons to buy REITs. Personally, in my opinion, one of the only reasons to do it is a 1031 exchange, either into a DST or a REIT, where you have highly, highly appreciated land that is not your primary residence, and you don't want to pay all that income tax. You want to be able to you know pass that on to your beneficiaries and get step up in basis. There can be some reasons to use a REIT for that purpose to kind of kick the can on taxes, but just outright buying a REIT as an investment, in my opinion, rarely makes sense. And bonds, uh, I mean, I hear about this once in a while. Could bonds potentially be a source of passive income and could it be enough passive income for it to make sense? Bonds are kind of in a window right now where they they look fairly attractive. Preceding two years or so while interest rates were going up, bonds were okay. But the prior 12 years or so before that, interest rates were roughly zero. And so because of that, bonds paid very little interest and had a much higher degree of risk. In fact, if we look at the 10-year look back on bonds from right now today, on the average bond, including corporate bonds and domestic bonds, treasuries, if we average all that out, bonds are only up about 9% over the last 10 years. Not per year, but total. And a lot of that was because interest rates were very low. And there was a great deal of risk, really, as a lot of people found out in 2022, to owning those bonds. And so if we go back and we look at the history of bonds over the last 12 years, it doesn't look so good. However, now that interest rates are higher, we are actually getting some interest on bonds. And if interest rates go back down, those bonds will actually appreciate as well. So the recent history on bonds is not too good. The current outlook for bonds is okay but it's probably going to be followed by another low interest rate period, which means bonds may have a hard way to go in the not-too-distant future. We're talking about creating passive income with Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group right here in Springfield. Again, questions about our topic today, 417-889-7233. Let's talk about uh, cash, cash equivalents here. And when I uh, think about that, I think about things such as CDs, certificates of deposit. Can you actually make enough with a CD these days to make it worthwhile? So right now, savings, money market, and CD rates are all very attractive. In fact, if you're still in a checking account or something and you're not getting interest, you should really consider moving that out to a money market. You can definitely get between 4 and 5% on safe, liquid money right now. I do think, though, that, that the days are limited uh, on that. As interest rates come back down, that will bring these down with it. As long as interest rates remain high, this will be attractive. But how much longer is that going to be for? That's anybody's guess. But right. in my opinion, the party will almost certainly be over 12 months from now. Do you think that high yield savings account and money market accounts, do they fall into the same category as uh, CDs as far as passive income goes? Yeah, I think so for the most part, especially in today's world, Jeff, where short-term CD rates pay much more than long-term CD rates. You know, it's all kind of the same thing. You might get an extra 30 or 40 basis points or four-tenths of a percent, five-tenths of a percent by tying it up for three months, six months. But if you really try to go to like five years or something, um, they're not going to pay you nearly as much interest. And that's because a lot of the banks know that we're likely to head back down on interest rates. For now, though, Jeff, yeah, I agree that CDs kind of fall into savings money market, especially because the majority of CDs being written right now is is short term. Are there types of annuities, Jake, that could throw off some passive income? Absolutely. When it comes to passive income and annuities, there's a lot of different types of annuities out there. We don't have time to really define all these today, but annuities can be a source of passive income, but you need to really understand what you're buying when it comes to an annuity. You know, Many times there's liquidity constraints. 
and the type of income that you're getting, you need to understand how that works as well, whether we're talking about an income rider, taking free withdrawals, all that kind of thing. But yeah, that's something that we'll look at when you come in for your free consultation. And again, to get that free consultation, 417-889-7233, 417-889-7233. Jake, in your estimation and your experience there at Floyd Financial Group, do you find that anyone can really live solely off of passive income? Uh, Yeah, there's some that can, but it really comes down to how big your nest egg is when it comes to passive income. Is 5% of whatever balance you have, is that enough for you to live on? You know, if you have $10 million, 5% on that is 500 grand. Most people can live on that just fine. But most people don't have $10 million either. So, but the answer is there are some that can, but usually with social security and a solid nest egg, we can get you where you need to be for retirement. Isn't that the whole idea, though, uh, when people come in and they come into you with a bunch of money in an IRA or a 401k and, you know, they're going to be drawing down from their principal, but really you're putting money into things that will throw off some passive income so that they don't have to touch the principal. Am I right about that simple concept? Yeah, that's part of the approach. The other part of the approach, though, is we want to grow the money that's under there so that we don't necessarily have to spend the money down. If we're taking a 5% withdrawal and we're earning 6 or 7%, you know, obviously we're going to grow that money a little bit over time. Now, I'm not saying those are the numbers we're going to get, but the idea would be to try to replace the income that you're taking out of there by either growing or having passive income into the portfolio. And with the opportunities today, Jake, I'm thinking of all the ways that uh, retirees or almost anyone can create passive income. I mean, I've heard of YouTube videos where it's just kids opening boxes and, you know, playing with toys, that sort of thing. And they're making tremendous money on YouTube. And, you know, that's really passive income. You can write an ebook. There are all sorts of ways to make passive income these days. If this is a topic that is interesting to you, you'd like to sit down with Jake at Floyd Financial Group and talk about the opportunities for passive income in your portfolio. As Jake has said, we're offering a no cost, no obligation, no judgment financial review. You can get yours by calling 417-889-7233. It's not going to cost you die, but this one call could make all the difference. 417-889-7233. Why don't you make that call this weekend? It's an opportunity and a no-tie zone for you to ask the questions and get the answers that you need to put you on a path towards an optimal retirement. Once again, 417-889-7233. You can also request your plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Time for a break, Jake. When we come back, we'll be talking about the five steps involved with this financial review when our show continues here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. People of the Ozarks, step away from the fishing pole and prepare to be shown the money because we're back with more straight talk and honest answers with Jake Floyd and Jeff Shade. Welcome back to Show Me the Money. I'm Jake Floyd. In this last segment, we're going to be talking about the five steps to retirement planning that we implement when you guys come in to see us. That's right. And 417-889-7233 is the number that we've mentioned many times to get your no cost and your no obligation and no judgment financial plan. So I thought it would be a pretty good idea in this part of this program to really talk about what that plan involves and what it's really like when you come in and sit down with Jake or Randy Floyd there at Floyd Financial Group. The first step would be discovery. Jake, describe what that's all about this first meeting. Yeah. So in the first meeting, the biggest thing we need to do is just get to know each other. 
I'll tell you a little bit about us as a company and how our business operates. And then we'll ask a few nosy questions to get to understand you and, and what's important to you. While the money part of it is important, it's probably not as important as understanding who you are as a person what you want to have happen with your money during retirement after you're no longer here, the things you like to do uh, with your time now that you're going to have more time as you come into retirement. Those are the types of things that we'll be talking about mostly. So we need to understand who you are in order to create a plan that makes sense for you. And your clients are pretty much like family there at Floyd Financial Group. And Randy often talks about, you know, this first meeting, we just sit and visit. But really, it's getting to know who you are. Now, during this first meeting, do you bring up product at all? No, in the first meeting, we're not going to talk really anything about investments or or what we may do with that money, because I really have to understand who you are and what's important to you before I could understand what is appropriate. So usually in that first meeting, we're just going to visit and get to know each other. And then after that, we kind of go to the drawing books. Okay. And you've got a drawing board, which I'm going to talk about. Actually, it's not necessarily a drawing board, but it's a big whiteboard to help explain (laughs) the things that you're uh, talking about there. So that's the discovery process. And then sometimes the discovery process may involve getting into the analysis. So let's talk about the analysis part of that. Once they've come in and they've described to you who they are, what they want to be in retirement, then you analyze what they've got. Is this a second meeting or does that go in the first meeting? Really, the analysis portion probably happens between the first meeting and second meeting. That's where I'm going to go to the drawing board there, like you said, Jeff, and really dive into what you have to work with, what's important to you, how can I tailor an investment strategy to give you the highest percent chance of success in doing exactly what you want to do in retirement, understanding your risk profile, understanding what what we have for Social Security and pension income, if any. All those things kind of come together, as well as, again, what's important to you, where you want to spend your time and what that's going to cost. And we say, okay, here's here's what we need to do. Here's how much money we need to come up with. Here's the best way, in my opinion, to come up with that. And then I go and present it to the client in the second meeting. So in order to analyze, you've got to have something to analyze. What should people bring to this meeting that you can analyze? Should they bring you know, bank statements? Uh, what should they really bring with them? To the second meeting, usually it's a good idea to have statements just to make sure we understand how everything's titled. It really more depends on how well you know what you have, because I do have people that don't have as good of details as far as how everything's titled, what investments things are in currently. If you're not 100% sure on those things, yeah, if you just bring statements with you, that's an easy way for me to be able to look at it and see. If you already know all that, I don't necessarily need statements at this point in the process. I may just have some questions about it just so that I understand where you're at now and how that's serving you now versus how it might serve you in retirement. Is it at all useful, Jake, to have a tax form? It definitely can be, especially if you have like rental property, things like that, just to help me understand how much money you're making there, how much you have in expenses, those types of things. Tax return is not a huge deal, again, if you know roughly what you're getting in income. And you know if you have a relatively simple setup, we don't usually need a tax return, but if you want to bring it along, uh, it can help answer some questions in certain cases. So the five-step process begins with discovery, then it goes into the analysis, analyzing what you have. Then once you've done all that and the client says, yeah, I want to move forward with this, then comes the planning process. 
what is involved in the planning process and do I have to be there necessarily as the client for you to do this? Usually, again, planning and analysis kind of go hand in hand where we're analyzing what you have. The planning process is, you know, understanding what investments will make sense. So you are, as the client, getting this information in the, both of these in the second meeting where I come to you and say, hey, you know, here's what I think we should do based on my experience, based on what is important to you in retirement and what you're looking to accomplish then usually at the end of that second meeting, we don't ask for any kind of a commitment or anything like that. I like people to go home, think about things, pray about things, if that's something that you do. Like my dad says, you know, if it's a good plan today, it'll be a good plan tomorrow. We're not necessarily in a hurry. Right. Um, and we want to make sure that uh, that you understand everything. I'm really big on explaining. Randy likes to explain, but I think he would say if he was here that that I really like to explain. So I think most people have never really understood what they have as investments. And I think that's an important part of what we do here is really explaining to you in detail what we would do and why. Not necessarily more than you would want to know, but most of the time people understand what they have for the first time after I have explained everything to them in the office here. And so in order to get where you want to go, you have to know what you have and right. and know where you're headed, right? And so it's hard to do that if you don't know what you have. And so I, I really like to help people understand the strategy before we really get moving on anything. And you also lay it all out on this big whiteboard that goes a long way towards explaining things too with the visuals. So once you've done the planning and people say, yeah, I'm interested in moving forward with this, then comes the implementation. So how do you do that? Yeah, so after we've had two or three meetings with people, usually it either makes sense or it doesn't make sense. And so if it does make sense, that leads us to the implementation. So we'll have to get together and usually we'll have some paperwork to do, some things that we need to accomplish. If we have 401ks, rolling 401ks over and or moving other investment accounts, IRAs, that kind of thing. Have a paperwork party, as we like to call it. And so the implementation part of that is usually the paperwork. And then after we have paperwork completed, we facilitate and make sure on our end that everything gets moved over properly. And then after everything comes over, then we set up one more time to get together where we can say, okay, everything's implemented. Make sure you understand everything, answer any other questions that you have. And then we move on to step five. And then you get your logins as well, too. I mean, can people go on the website, log into their account, and sort of keep track of what's going on? A hundred percent. Yeah. Everything we do here, we'll, you'll have a login so you can look in and monitor it as much as you would like to do that. I have some people that never log in. I have people that log in every single day. Um, so what, whatever's important to you, that's where we want to meet you. But most people hire an investment advisor because they don't want to be one themselves. Mm. But yeah, you'll have access to any of that anytime you want it. If someone is coming to you, Jake, from another financial planning firm, I mean, it's hard to break up with people. Do you help with that process at all? Absolutely. You know, I understand that, uh, you know, some people want to make a change, but they've known somebody maybe 20 years and it's hard for them to make that change. So yeah, there's a lot of ways that we can help facilitate that to be as easy as possible. Again, we do want people though that want to you know, we want willing participants, meaning I don't want to try to convince anybody to do anything they don't want to do. And I'm not going to try to do that. If you come in here and things don't make sense, that's okay with us. We're blessed enough to be uh, as a business in, in a very good position. I don't need to bring on new clients. I just want to bring on clients where I can bring value and it makes good sense for them and for us. We're talking about the five-step process at Floyd Financial Group. We started with discovery, analysis, then we went to planning and implementation. And the final of the five 
five steps here, Jake, is going to be follow-up. What is involved with that? How often do you follow up? Usually, Jeff, in the beginning, we get together every 90 days after our implementation process is completed. And we just like to make sure, okay, hey, we set up retirement income. How's that feeling? You know, do we feel like we have enough? Do we have too much? We just like to get together every 90 days and say, hey, is everything exactly the way that we said it would be? We want to make sure everything's going correctly. Most likely there'll be questions that come up. Also at these 90-day reviews, we also like to kind of give our prognosis, if you will, for markets and where the economy is and things like that, what we see on the horizon. Now that doesn't mean we're right 100% of the time, but we can kind of give you a feeling for what we feel like is coming. One of the things we ask is, you know, has there been any major changes to your beneficiaries or any family? changes. Maybe the husband was retired, but the wife wasn't. Now the wife is retired. So we'll we'll talk about that and how all that comes in. So usually 90 days in the beginning. And then usually after several 90-day reviews, we're like, you know, this is great. I don't need to come in this often. Then we usually go to six months or maybe even a year. We do want to see everybody at least once a year, though, because it's just important that we keep on top of things that change. And we need to make sure that we're doing our job and make sure we understand if there's anything changing your life, what it is that we need to be focused on there. So, And Jake, because you're on the radio every week, I mean, some people listen to us for years here in the radio and they make the assumption that, well, this is a big fancy investment firm. These guys are really smart. They've got a lot of clients. I know we're near half enough money to deal with Floyd Financial Group. How would you answer that question? We are not really in the business of turning people away because they don't have enough money. You know, we don't have any minimums at Floyd Financial Group. We we want to make sure that we're bringing value to the situation. So I would say that at $10,000, we may not be able to bring a lot of value to the situation, but even at 25000 50000 something like that, um, it can make sense for us to work together. I will not have any trouble, though, meeting with people that have less money. Happy to sit and answer questions. Again, my goal when I got into to this business 17 years ago or almost 18 years ago now was just to bring value to everybody's situation. How can I help? I want to be able to help. If I can't help, I will say so. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we'll just have a new friend and that's okay. That does happen somewhat frequently where people come in and I'll say, you know, there's maybe some things I would change, but I don't know that it's enough to justify upsetting your apple cart. So maybe we'll just leave it alone and keep an eye on it. And Randy has said many times, we'll meet you where you are here at Floyd Financial Group. And finally, because of all the work that you do with these consultations here, with these complimentary meetings that you have, is there any cost to this? Yeah, so there's no cost at all for us to sit down. Uh, I don't bill for time or anything like that. I just want to have good conversations with people. And I find that if people feel like they're on the clock, like if you go to an attorney and they're billing you $200 an hour, everybody's in a hurry and you don't have very good conversations. So yeah, there's no cost at all for us to sit down. And if and when we get together on investment, you'll understand how our fees work and all that kind of thing. But before that, there's no cost of any kind. So I want to talk to our listeners here for just a moment. Jake, if you're not sure you're properly prepared for retirement, you're not sure you've got enough money saved, you're not sure about your risk tolerance, your tax plan, income, cash flow, I would highly suggest that you call Floyd Financial Group right now, 417-889-7233. You've heard Jake talk about what this discovery process is all about. It doesn't cost you a dime. There is no judgment whatsoever. So what are you waiting for? It's 
a great opportunity for you to get your questions answered to put you on a path towards a successful retirement. I really think it's going to be a missed opportunity if you don't call Jake there at Floyd Financial Group. 417-889-7233. No cost, no obligation, and no judgment. You can also request your complimentary plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. It's floydfinancialgroup.com. Jake, out of time for this week. I want to thank you for your time, but as always, most importantly, I want to thank our fine listeners for joining us here in the greater Springfield area. For Jake Floyd, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Show Me the Money right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. The information provided in the preceding program is for educational purposes only and are not intended as investment advice for any individual or entity. All information contained herein believed to be from reliable sources, however, we make no representations as to its completeness or accuracy. The opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not constitute financial, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your financial professional before executing any financial strategy. Financial planning offered through Floyd Financial Group, LLC, an investment advisor registered in the state of Missouri.